0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 13th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson.
0: Hello, everyone.
1: Jane Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein.
2: Hi, everybody.
1: Uh, Evan, what do you got for this day in skepticism?
2: July 16th, 1945. The world officially enters the atomic age when the first atomic bomb was exploded at Los Alamos, New Mexico. Codenamed Trinity. And that explosion was a ball of fire that reached out over 40,000 feet, packing a punch
3: equivalent to 20,000 tons of TNT. So that was just 20 kilotons. That's... That sounds tiny when, they, when we're getting into megatons. You've got to remember this is the first one. Yeah, yeah.
2: And this was a part of a series, actually, of uh, tests and explosions uh, right up to the really, really bigger ones that occurred years later. However, this was the predecessor to the bombs being dropped uh, on Japan. Uh, so you can tell by the date. It's just a few weeks before they stuffed him in the planes, the Enola Gay, and uh sent him off to uh end the war. <laughs> yeah. Pretty significantly, yeah.
1: Yep. It's probably uh, did you, probably a good idea to test him first.
2: The uh the weapons informal nickname was the gadget. The gadget. And uh the uh Oppenheimer dubbed it that because uh he didn't want anything uh, he didn't want to use the word bomb or anything else, you know, coming close to bomb or explosion or anything else like that. So it was simply deemed the gadget.
1: I've heard the, a rumor, which I've never been able to verify, that scientists at the time weren't absolutely sure that there wasn't going to be like some kind of atmospheric chain reaction when they set off the first atomic bomb.
2: Yep. That's never, right. You guys uh, ever I, heard
1: I, that?
3: I've heard pretty much the same thing. They were, f- they were fairly confident, but they weren't one, you know, they weren't as sure as they may, you know, maybe perhaps would have liked to have yeah. been, but, uh, they were fairly sure, which, you know, was kind of scary considering the, uh, the potential right of igniting the atmosphere. <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> According to my sources, the observers set up betting pools on the results of the tests
3: Wasn't that uh, silly?
2: with, with predictions ranging from zero, which is a complete dud to 45 kilotons of TNT to the destruction of the state of New Mexico, to ignition of the atmosphere, and incineration of the entire planet. So that's a, that's
1: quite a range. Should anybody bet on that? Uh, <laughs> you know what, Steve, it did it, it. Well, why would you right? <laughs> why, why would you? I win. All right. no.
2: Physicist I Rabbi or Rabbi R A B I uh, won the pool with a prediction of eighteen kilotons. So he was the closest.
1: That's good work, boys.
3: Still 18,000 tons of TNT. A lot.
2: The, uh, the Fallout map, if you look at the state of New Mexico, is pretty significant. I mean, it covers about whew, three-fifths of the state, actually, the range of the Fallout. Now, those extreme edges, you know, there isn't all that much Fallout. I'm sure people narrowly
3: saw any effects and stuff. But I wonder what a gigaton would do. Do you guys think it'd stop
4: the war? Uh,
2: Did... the, two, the two bombs? Yeah, oh, definitely! Didn't it? Definitely,
1: no question. Yeah, yeah I mean,
4: definitely. I've heard arguments that it isn't, but
2: there were. Uh, it was the option of either dropping these weapons or doing a mass invasion of the island of Japan with a million troops, also known as Z Day. They called they were going to call it Z Day, the invasion of Japan.
3: I'm glad we didn't use that term because that's I have much better uses for something called Z Day. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> are you concocting something, Bob? Is it? A- oh, yeah. Little plan that's uh, one more set of facts pertaining to the Trinity project. There were actually two designs, right? The bullet design and the uh, internal explosion design. So, yeah. so this was the in- internal explosion design. Uh, elevated it up the tower to simulate it uh, exploding at that elevation yeah, over, yeah, over, exactly. the, over the land. Um, everything was vaporized, obviously the tower and all uh, turned the desert sands into glass in a twenty five hundred foot radius and wow, a very cool shot uh, photograph aerial photograph um, you know after it 's all done of this absolute black scorch <laughs> like um, almost a perfect circle with little star patterns on the edges of blackness in the middle of this otherwise you know light colored desert fascinating
1: well let 's see that. Do you know that one of the bombs that was dropped was uh, you know, between uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki? One of the bombs was plutonium-based, and the other one was uranium-based. They're actually yep. different bombs.
2: The Trinity Project was plut- plutonium-based. Um, plutonium, you don't need as much material, apparently, yeah. as you do uranium. And uranium is very expensive and difficult to process and, and so forth. Plutonium is more accessible in bomb design.
3: So did they do that just as, a, as just a safety thing? Like, well, if this technology doesn't really work, then perhaps this other approach will work? Is that the reason why they...
2: Two vectors just trying to deal with the issue in two different means using two different visionable materials.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to test them both out, test out the two different, two, two different types they had. It's also interesting that when we dropped the first bomb on Hiroshima, Japan thought that that was the only one we had. And then when we dropped the second one, Everyone assumed we had an arsenal. Well,
3: that was actually – that was key.
1: That was absolutely key. But in fact, we had just the two. (laughs) Just the two. Psych! Uh, Jay, you're going to tell us about some people who were apparently hypnotized to death. (laughs) What?
4: Yeah, three Florida high school students die after being hypnotized by their school principal. That was the article – that was was the name of the article that I found on the web – so I just wanted to stop there and ask you guys, in the title alone, what's the logical fallacy here? Three Florida high school students die after being hypnotized by their school principal.
0: Correlation does not equal causation.
4: Exactly. So for you, I bet you can predict now what I'm about to say.
1: <sighs>
4: Florida Sarasota County police report that three students died shortly after actually being hypnotized by the school principal. Mm-hmm. The, guy's, the guy's name is George Kenny. And he admitted to hypnotizing over 75 people, including students, parents, and staff. But he was doing this to help them improve their schoolwork and their sports. Three of the students that he hypnotized actually did die. One of them died in a car crash and the other two by suicide.
1: You know, How? over a three-month period. Over a three-month yeah. period, right. yeah. What, okay.
4: Did they touch the raggedy Ann doll
2: in Ed Warren's basement too? I mean, <laughs> you know, you might – you, could, I you did. could It's crazy.
4: Yeah, I don't really see any reason to think that what he did with them, I mean, he he considered it therapy. He actually went to school at uh, the Omni Hypnosis Training Center in D-Land, Florida. So he was trained, and there are people that believe in hypnotism. There are people that don't believe in it. But either way, I don't think that you can convince people to kill themselves. Uh, yeah, no,
0: you can't. I mean, and you certainly can't convince them to get in a car accident. Like <laughs> the guy, The you know... Hypnotism, when it comes to being used as a therapy, is I'm pretty sure mostly bunk, anyway, isn't it?
1: No, not really. Um, it, therapeutic hypnotism has some evidence behind it. It has very limited applications, and
0: is it like meditation and relaxation? In a way? Yeah, 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 like
1: self uh, anesthesia, you know, like reducing you know your your pain perception, right. and it, it's and it is legitimate. Uh, at From a neuroscience point of view, I mean you, you know the, there's a there is a science behind what is going on in the brain when someone is hypnotized, and it 's interesting it has nothing to do with what happens in stage hypnotism to a completely different animal uh, but it, and it, again it 's not a different uh, it 's not a trance or anything like that, but it is a particular state of consciousness. Uh, in which, in fact, you are hyper-alert. You're not in any way you know, sedated or sleepy. That's BS. You're Suggestible, a, too? A, you're in a hyper-alert and a hyper-suggestible state. And it's essentially a way of getting you know somebody into – to focus their in- attention in such a way that they're not – Processing all the information, you know, consciously proce- processing all the information that you're giving to them, so that you can sort of slip in, you know, some things that they're they're not aware of, uh, but they're it still gets into their subconscious, and, and that can, we could see that happening on like fMRI's and stuff. It, it's a it's a sort of a legitimate thing from a from a neuroscience point of view, but it, yeah, all of the the pop notions about what hypnotism is is not true. You, know, you can't you know, turn someone into yeah, a chicken. Make someone think they're a chicken or anything like that. It's uh, That's all, again, that's a, more the stage hypnotism where you just get suggestible people to play along, basically. Uh, so he, you know, I, I don't think his application of it getting people to be more motivated in athletics and school, I don't think there's anything to support that. Uh, you know, above and beyond just motivating people, just telling them, hey, let's, you know, let's get focused on our on our performance. I don't think there's any added benefit to the hypnotism itself. Uh, but it's also harmless. It's not going to kill people. You know? Well, the
4: school board actually didn't think that because he received three warnings from the school board to stop that activity. Yeah. Uh, what I found kind of interesting was a statement by his lawyer uh, was uh, because, two offense, uh, because two events occurred, it does not mean that one caused the other. So I was yeah, happy to hear that later. the yeah you know, the lawyer kind of got the logical fallacy there, probably without even knowing the name of it correctly, but you know that was good. you know the guy uh, does face possible criminal charges too, so nah. apparently people uh, do take this very seriously I don't, and do th- think
1: there haven 't been any charges i don 't think there 's going to be it 's silly I, th- I I suspect the school board didn 't want the liability of you know the principal's doing something weird. stop it we don 't want the liability and you know right and and th- yeah. they're in a way you could say that they're justified because some quirky thing like this will happen like a cluster of deaths that are completely unrelated and you don't want parents to think oh did this have something to do with this weird thing the principal was doing yeah. you know what i mean which is a shame you know that anything interesting or innovative that could be perceived as unusual you have to be so paranoid about it because if you just get unlucky and kids get into car crashes or or commit suicides, which is, you know, teenage years is, a, is one of the peaks of, of suicide risk. So the bottom uh, line, I guess, is what? Don't be different unless, because yeah, you right. might get unlucky. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, yeah. That seems to be, you know, what was going on. But at the same time, I think what the principal was doing was probably worthless, not of any added value beyond just ordinarily trying to motivate people
4: steve if if somebody believes that it's going to work though it might have some type of placebo effect yeah kind you're of. you're
1: absolutely right jay and there there is a nonspecific effect from introducing any kind of novel thing into either a therapeutic relationship or or this kind of motivational relationship. It's, it, you're right. It's a short-lived, nonspecific effect. That's why, in my opinion, I think the evidence supports this, you know all kinds of weird th- uh, therapy things like uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. You know where you make people follow your finger while you'll, you tell them to forget their post-traumatic stress trigger or whatever that the eye movement stuff doesn't do anything that it's just introducing a novel different thing into the process that that makes people think oh something new is happening but the hand waving explanation that the believers put in the, about what's happening in the brain is all nonsense in my opinion it's not based upon anything uh, so yes yeah, so do, doing the hypnosis does have that novelty aspect to it but that's it so but the media reporting terrible
2: Yeah, Well, it definitely catches your attention. Yeah. Why is this on Business Insider?
0: A lot of businesses use stage hypnotists for things like that, don't they? Firing up the employees and stuff.
1: Yeah, firewalking, all that kind of crap. It's very popular in corporate circles.
4: Do you guys notice that when you are researching a news article and you want to find some other supporting articles or, or a story from a different news source that a lot of times it's just one identical news source. Yep, it throws you right back. I've called a press press release.
1: Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. Or, you know, the AP or Reuters or something. Somebody writes it, it gets out there on The Wire and everybody picks it up. Why have your own reporters? You can just pull crap off The Wire. Yeah. Especially
0: when it comes to science news because so many newspapers have been ditching their science departments, you know, to slash the budget. So they end up either just picking up AP news stories or... Printing press releases as is, is, why? Which happens, you know. I think i mentioned this before. It happens an awful lot in the UK, particularly. Yeah, so it's not a good situation.
3: Or they let uh, Bob, who does the uh, the gardens, the gardening section of the paper, uh, handle the science section that week. Uh, yeah, which is really scary.
1: The person who used to have the restaurant beat was uh, covering science stories. Yeah. <laughs> It's not really their fault. They're being asked to cover something that's not really in their specialty. Uh, Anyway, let's move on to a a very interesting news item. Do you guys remember when we had a Yale scientist on the show talking about uh, how he was able to infer the color of the feathers of extinct birds or extinct bird ancestors? Uh, Right? So yeah, been, I remember now, the interview, yeah, but I uh, don't remember
2: how it, exactly how it happened.
1: <laughs> yeah, a separate team has come up with a a separate method of doing the same thing. So the Yale team is looking at melanosomes, which are essentially fossilized proteins, the melanin that makes up the color of you know skin and feathers and whatnot, uh, and they found a correlation between the shape of the melanosomes. Essentially, is it you know uh, spherical or more elongated and the the color of the melanosomes is it black or red uh and so they were able to show patterns you know, of color on on extinct bird feathers by looking at the patterns of the shapes of the melanosomes so it's interesting it's always cool to to get a peek into something like that like i i remember Watching dinosaur shows or documentaries of anything about extinct animals, and you realize that we have no idea what these things actually looked like. I think we were even talking on the show about the you know, a lot of extinct animals could have had all kinds of soft tissue parts that don't fossilize. You know, um, yeah. we, how would we know what camel, about camels' humps or you know what what an elephant's nose looked like you know, just from the the bones themselves? And and one aspect of that is color. Uh, in fact, if you recall, up to a very short time ago, just a couple of years ago, uh, certainly as of the Jurassic Park movies, uh, theropod dinosaurs like Velociraptors were portrayed as being scaly. Uh, but it, it turns out they were had, probably had these dramatic display feathers. You know, they were flightless; they couldn't fly, but they had feathers. Big plumes. Very different. Very different-looking creature. So it's cool when we can look at the very subtle remnants in fossils to infer even more information other than just what the bones look like. Steve, why would shape have anything to do with color, though? Well, I mean, it's just different proteins have different color, and they fossilize differently. you know? But the, the shapes, there are some problems with just using shape to infer color because they they don't necessarily preserve that shape well over millions of years. Uh, for example. So what this other team did is they were looking at uh, chemical markers of the melanosomes. Specifically, they were using x-ray techniques to image uh, copper remnants in bird ancestors, Confucius soreness specifically, because certain types of melanosomes of certain colors would have you know, a certain chemistry uh, sometimes involving copper, other times not in, you know involving other trace elements and and that would be left behind in the fossil you know feather impressions and a pattern that relates to the pattern of color on uh, on the the species on the bird ancestor so it's it 's interesting it 's completely different than the methods used by the yale team uh, and they they for Confucius soreness, um for example, what they were able to figure out is that. It had very dark coloring on its body, and then lighter color- coloring out by the wings. Still, they're just looking at you know one type of uh, melanin. They say that there could be non-melanin pigments, like carotenoids, contributing to color. So this isn't telling the whole story. Uh, they still could be, look very different than what it, what we're seeing in the fossils. But you know, w- hopefully, we'll learn how to look for and detect other types of remnants that could tell us more about uh about their what they look like in addition to their you know their color but also other things. So it's cool. I mean it's really it's amazing how much you know scientists are able to tell just from uh from the fossils, from from the little traces that are left behind, you know.
4: Yeah, I agree. It is awesome. And I you know, I always wanted to know what they sounded like.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you remember like from one of the later Jurassic Park mov- movies they created a three-dimensional model of like, like the, a, air, uh, the air the uh, air chamber in in the skull of a velociraptor and they used that to to figure out what their what they would have sounded like but I don't think that that really would work.
3: Soft tissue would play a big, yeah, big I think, role I would yeah,
1: think. Yeah, I yeah, right, you wouldn't know what how the soft tissue was modifying that
2: and would a uh, oxygen richer atmosphere sound different. Right, yeah. always in an oxygen-rich atmosphere, sounding a little different yeah, than would, uh, what we experience today. A
3: little, it really would. Why would it be higher or lower than than? Well, I would think the density uh, of the atmosphere would uh, would make an impact, but the actual con- oxygen Maybe. content,
1: the amount of oxygen, it would probably be subtle. I mean, just a few percentage more oxygen.
2: It's just not oxygen, though. I mean, there are other chemicals.
1: Yeah, but the difference, you know, okay. the, uh, the uh, atmosphere back then was still mostly nitrogen, just like it is now. There was just a few yeah. more percentage points of oxygen. Uh, not dramatically different. Probably not something you could detect by the ear, speaking with helium. Human ear. Yeah, with helium or. What was the one that Adam Savage used? That, oh, that was great. That um, made, a, oh, made his voice. Really deep. Or something? Was, no, it was he- uh, hexafluorium or something?
0: Hexafluoride. Hexafluoride. Sol- sulfur hexafluoride. Yeah.
1: That was cool. <laughs> it's like the opposite effect of helium. I, I love that. Really I totally deep... yeah. yeah, like can... you're
0: suddenly possessed by Satan. Yes, oh. right.
1: <laughs> exactly. Bob, tell us how magnetic microprocessors are going to revolutionize the computing industry.
3: Oh, well, we shall see. But scientists at the University of California in Berkeley believe that in the near future, computers will compute with nano- nanometer sized bar magnets. Of course, they're being called nanomagnets, uh, resulting <laughs> resulting in one million times less energy being required than current silicon chip-based computers use. So dramatic, dramatic changes. Yeah. Um, now, th- this is possible because essentially no elect no electrons will be used in in their conception uh, for these for these computers uh, for the logic operations. No electrons at all. Then that means no electrons, no electrical resistance, no waste heat. You know, far less power consumption, uh, and we've we've all had hot laptops on our laps. Uh, that's just a, a small, a small benefit, but that that and much more could become a thing of the past. Now, you may think um, that the power requirements that are a millionth of what they are now is is impossible. It just seems like too dramatic. Like, how could they possibly make such a huge change? But it's actually right at the limit of what physics allows, uh, and there's actually a term. A, For this specific thing, or I guess it's not too surprising, it's called the Landauer limit. I I wasn't too familiar with this, but the Landauer limit is the absolute minimum possible energy required to change one bit of information. Mm -hmm. Now, 50 years ago, IBMer Rolf Landauer had his hands on a new tool called information theory. Now, he uses theory, which of course is uh, very popular today and very useful. Uh, He used the theory to calculate the minimum energy required for for a logic operation like an AND or an OR operation. This ties into the second law of thermodynamics, which says that entropy or disorder... Always increases in a closed system, right? We've talked about this a bunch of times, and yeah. that's why, and that's why perpetual motion machines are are bunk, essentially, f- for that reason. Um, now, in this context, the law says that a process that's irreversible, like a logic operation, or, for example, the erasure of a bit of information, dissipates heat that cannot that cannot ever be recovered. So, the Landauer effect is that minimum un- unrecoverable amount of energy that physics absolutely requires for these operations to to occur. The magnets themselves are are pretty interesting as well. They're they're about 100 nanometers wide and about 200 nanometers long, so pretty tiny. Um, they're like little the bar bar magnets with the, the north south polarity that everyone's familiar with. Uh, the ones and zeros of binary code are then represented by the way these the poles of these little magnets are oriented, and then the way these different uh, nanomagnets interact with each other. Uh, can also permit different types of logic operations to be carried out so uh, it's very very versatile just these little magnets it's amazing what they can accomplish and it's actually that, that that's actually not the difficult part The real the real difficult part is is actually connecting is the wires and and other parts of the uh, of the computer to these uh, they, they that could be a bit of a hurdle there but uh, if it's pr- this is practical this technology could be revolutionary for lots of reasons for one I mean, the article didn't specifically state this, but I guess it seems fairly obvious to me that um, if you could, if your, your if your power consumption was so low, your battery life would be unbelievable. I mean, imagine running a laptop on the same charge for ten years. Yeah. Uh, now I'm just throwing that number out there, but if but it seems uh, that's probably conservative if they if they could really achieve what they're talking about these
1: so many well, yeah, orders of magnitude. Bob, but how? Just you know, is, is a little bit of a side point, but. Um, how much of the energy that a laptop, for example, uses is due to processing? How much is due to right. lighting the the monitor, spinning a CD? You know? Yeah,
3: yeah, that that's that's an important factor, and that's why I, I made it so so conservative. But even if it's so, you know, even if I'm way off. And it's, uh, nine months, uh, nine months on a single charge instead of 10 years. Regardless, it's going to be a a pretty big, a pretty big increase in battery life. And and of course, if you also factor in improvements in battery technology that are, that slowly occur over time, it's it's, a, it could have have a dramatic impact.
1: Solid-state hard drives. Oh, absolutely. absolutely.
3: Biological
1: LEDs, which use less energy. Yeah, there's other things too.
3: The other, the other impact now, power consumption and heat generation is a bit is a big concern. The bigger the the computers get as well. I remember reading about uh, the transition from the, the the petaflop, the petascale supercomputers that are that are around now, and uh, to the exascale or one quintillion um, operations a second uh, computers nice. that they anticipate in in 2018. Um, that that transition is is quite dramatic, obviously, but even more so, much more dramatic than going from from uh, from the the lower orders of magnitude, the, the teraflop computers and such. Because um, when when these exascale computers are going to have hundreds of millions of cores, potentially, these going to be amazing computers. But the power required is actually um, it could be untenable with uh, with the current designs. For example, China's got the uh, how do you pronounce this? The Tianhe one A Tianhe Ch- one A yeah. Uh... That supercomputer, I think it's currently the number one supercomputer with um, two or three uh, exaflops. Fast, crazy fast. But if you if you could scale up that computer to exascale performance, you would actually require you would need 1.6 gigawatts of power, enough electricity to to light 1.6 gigawatts. gigawatts.
4: <laughs> <laughs> of Imagine, of that.
3: right? Two million homes you could light with the power you would need to, to How run many? this computer. Two million houses. I mean, so, it's, so that's clearly – there's no way. They, they need a radical design change in, or, in order to, uh, to make this feasible. You're not, we're not going to get to exascale computing performance using the designs that we have now. We've got to make them much more efficient, and this is potentially one, one way to do it. And, but also,
1: uh, Bob, it's not just with supercomputers. Just as we try to cram more and more processing power onto our desktops and laptops – Heat dissipation becomes a bigger and bigger technological challenge, and starts to that starts to be the real limiting factor. Yeah, it really is. That's yeah. why they're
3: they're considering the three the three D designs of chips and uh, and novel ways to dissipate heat. Yeah, because the heat dissipation is one is one interesting side of the coin, as and the other side is is power consumption, and they kind of go hand kind of yeah. go hand in hand. But uh, yeah, so that's that's the other part as well. And uh, I'll finish with uh, Jeffrey Bocor. He's a UC Berkeley professor of electrical engineering, and he was in on this. And uh, he said that in principle, one could, I think, build real circuits that would operate right at the Landauer limit. And even if we can get within one order of magnitude, a factor of 10 of this limit, it would represent a huge reduction in energy consumption for electronics. It would be absolutely revolutionary. So, uh, so I hope they continue researching this. Uh, the, the benefits could be quite interesting, and, and uh, we'll see what happens.
1: This is all just a theoretical stage right now, right? I mean they don't have any they've – actually, They've actually
3: got some decent evidence. They've run simulations and actually in 2006, uh, somebody actually used uh, – I believe they actually used these little magnets to, to, as a proof of concept. Yeah. So it's a little bit more than just – uh, this should work type of thing it's uh they've done some interesting simulations and uh, an actual one design i think they tested that they believe could scale up to this incredible uh power saving so uh it looks pretty good but you know the way it is i mean yeah. stuff can, stuff could crop up that just like oh crap forget this
1: but it sounds like even best case scenario we're talking about 10 20 years
3: oh geez, yeah i would guess i would guess it. yeah i would guess yeah everything's guess. right over the horizon yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right <Yeah.
1: laughs>
2: that horizon just keeps uh moving
1: all right, well, uh, at least theoretically, it's very, very interesting. But it's good to know that there are lots of possibilities on the horizon when we we really get to the limits of our of the silicon chip design, which we're, sounds like we're getting close to. Uh, Rebecca, tell us about ABC News' breakthrough research into psychic twins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm
0: sure you guys are going to be really excited about this news, but uh, ABC News be. has, in fact, uncovered definitive proof that uh, twins are magic. <laughs> 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 uh, wait, wait,
2: wait. Are we talking Harry Potter? I'm talking the
0: whole thing. Like, they, they can magically tell one another's thoughts. They can probably magically bring into the world creatures that don't actually exist. I mean, <sighs> who knows? Who, ah. knows? who knows the true extent of their powers? But ABC Makes News. that
2: computer thing Bob talked about look like a pile of crap. Exactly. <laughs> Damn, I wish I picked that story.
0: Yeah. Can they exactly. fart rainbows?
3: I believe <laughs> they can fart
0: both rainbows and poo cupcakes. Awesome. <laughs> so that, low yeah, cake. low, fat, low fat cupcakes, right? Mm-hmm. And this is all science. <laughs> so, AB, ABC <laughs> News. Science ish. <laughs> science so, Yeah, scientific Um So. Psychic Twins Tested for Twin Tuition is the headline of this ABC News report. No, they they did
2: not use the term twin tuition. They did.
0: Twin tuition.
2: Oh, they're punning. J.J.
0: Pierce High School in Richardson, Texas, apparently has a Guinness World Record for the most number of twins. They have 10 pairs of twins and a set of triplets who are all currently in the 11th grade. And so this provided them an interesting opportunity to do some some real scientific tests uh, concerning exactly how psychic these twins are. Because we have this idea of twins being able to tell what one, other, one another is thinking and feeling at the time. If, any, if anybody ever saw that Lindsay Lohan movie where she was a stripper, oh. you know what I'm talking about. That um, wasn't real? Machete? <laughs> that was actually fact. That was a documentary they they show these kids undergoing their psychic tests and they involve writing down your a number just write down a number and another one is write down a color i believe or or choose a color of some sort mm-hmm. yeah. and remarkably the other twins uh, apparently do very well in in guessing at what the color or the number is now can anybody think of anything that
3: might be wrong with this,
4: well, this test maybe, of psychic powers? Maybe because Gee. they
3: grew up together and spend a lot of time uh-huh. together and they know each other very yeah, well. Yeah, they
4: know each other's favorite stuff, sure.
0: You guys uh, are so smart. I knew you would know it. Um, yes. Also, I might that.
1: add, there was no control.
5: Hello? Yeah, right. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> Hello,
0: control? Yeah, there was none of that. Uh, not in the science. But control? the good news this is, is that... Chaos. <laughs> ah, thank the you. the, thank the you. good news is that the, the report wasn't Totally out there They did have their token skeptic And gave her quite a bit of time I think near the end of the segment They had uh, Psychology professor Nancy Siegel Who has done work on twins Who specifically comes right out And says she doesn't think It's got anything to do with ESP She thinks it has to do with Shared history Basically, mm-hmm. they get to know each other very well and can finish one another's sentences and, and, you know, intuit what the other is thinking and, uh, be empathetic toward one another in a way that maybe twins, uh, in a way that, that, that children who don't grow up that close might not be able to do.
2: She said so. the shared DNA is a factor. She
0: did, she did also say shared DNA, but I don't, I don't think she, she was referring specifically to their ability to guess numbers and colors in that instance. I'm I'm going to guess... Just how that,
2: their brains work, right? And how their that's, thought that's processes what I'm gonna, work.
0: See, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt because she came across as being very reasonable. So, yeah, I would guess it would be... How their brain works, or maybe if it's something to do with them getting sick at the same time, or you know, having similar illnesses—that uh, kind of thing. She gets
1: quoted a lot. If you look up any article on like the twin connection, she's the one, the go-to expert. I guess she's like, she's the only one doing work yeah. on it. And yeah, she's very clear that it's just a similarity in you know the, the way their brains function because they have the same DNA. Uh, there's nothing mystical or magical about it. Yeah.
4: Well, you know, it's not uncommon to. To share a lot of thoughts and uh, thought patterns with people that you know well or that you live with. I mean Sure. I mean Steve, think about how often you, Bob and I, the same thought occurs to us, you know, the I was just thinking that stuff happens more with you guys than yeah. it does with everybody else because yeah, sure. you know, we grew up together.
1: Yeah. I knew you were gonna say that. I just thought we were <laughs> a psychic all this time. You love the the confirmation bias in any sort of discussion about the twin tuition type thing. Like Don't all the say that. Aneg- all the anecdotal evidence of people giving you know all these uncanny stories about how somebody one twin was in a car accident, the other twin suddenly at the same exact moment wha- felt wha- pain, Yeah, f- f- whatever, felt anxious or pain. Really, did they synchronize their watches? Did they? They really <laughs> know it was the exact same <laughs> moment? I mean, how how was that controlled for? Uh, yeah. yeah. You can just see these things happen. They're, they're prepared to believe it, so they retrofit the details to, to tell a good story about their twin tuition.
2: Twin tuition. Oh,
0: right. Now you can't stop
1: saying it. Right. So. Uh, the, doesn't work. It's catchy. Damn them. But Siegel is also clear to say that there's absolutely no scientific evidence for an ESP connection between twins. It's been studied. Yeah. The studies are negative. doesn't exist. Yeah. Negative. Uh, yeah, but it's, just, it's, you know, the the news reporting, once again, it's like, Sucks! who knows? It could be psychic, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
2: You decide. Yeah,
1: you decide.
0: <laughs> we Thanks report, ABC. you decide.
3: <laughs> Must uh,
1: <yeah>. sell newspapers.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Evan, tell us about Who's That Noisy?
2: It's time to play Who's That Noisy? <laughs> 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 That's right. Let's do it, Evan. Here is the "Who's That Noisy" from
1: last week. Uh, so maybe this is a good time to ask: Did anything trigger your interest in um, the paranormal or UFOs specifically? I mean,
2: well, not much to go by, but uh, Rebecca guessed correctly. So, if
1: some bloke, you know,
0: it's that's Louis Theroux.
2: That's right. Do you know what Louis Theroux's television show is called? Well, he's had a shows. he's had a
0: couple, but. It's like Louis Theroux and the weirdest family in the world or,
2: or something. Close. Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends.
4: Oh, yeah. Weird. I still think that guy's name sounds like a Dr. Seuss character. <laughs> it's Louis it Theroux who lived at the zoo. Lu- <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he
2: looked at his laces, needed to tie his shoe.
1: And he kept throwing poo.
2: Can you throw poo, too?
1: Now, we're actually we're recording this a little early, so we don't know who guessed it correctly. So we'll just have to we save have that for next week. N-
2: we have no clue. Just say
1: Trenok and we'll be probably- <laughs> <laughs> uh- What do you got for this week, Evan?
2: All right. This week, we have the following for Who's That Noisy? <laughs> uh-huh.
1: <laughs> Better turn the volume up on that one. that
2: sounds.
4: Familiar. If you weren't awake,
2: now you are. All right. Well, give it your best guess, everyone. Info at org is our email. Or come on, join our forums. Get on there and give us your best guess. Good luck to everyone.
1: Thank you, Evan. we got time for one email this week. This one comes from – now, this guy's got to be pulling my leg. Martin Tanishoff, but there's like a lot of weird characters in there. Do you guys know how to pronounce that? It's
2: good enough. Oh, actually, it's from Germany, so the A is long. So it's Tanischoff. Hol uh.
1: Okay. Okay. Martin yeah. from <laughs> Karlsruhe, Germany. Now, this email has the distinction of Ooh. being the first one, and I'm pretty sure, that actually gives the coordinates of his location, not just the name of the Ooh, city and I, country. I, I like well, that.
2: I mean, that's a fair assumption to make that it's a coordinate. We don't actually know that for sure. He might be trying to yeah.
1: trick us. They in are coordinates. Martin. They may not be yeah, where definitely. he actually is. Oh, yeah.
2: But, yeah. They're Earth coordinates.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, Martin writes... Chalk up another obsessed listener to your great show. It has been my entry point into organized skepticism, although I consider myself a skeptic for 15 of my 30 years. At a barbecue this weekend, I came across a yet unheard argument in favor of young earth creationism. If my memory serves me well, I didn't hear that one treated on your show yet. Maybe you'd like to mention it. So my friend told me after referring to the Glen Ross Formation, the Glen Rose Formation, Paluxy River tracks told me that if humans and men didn't live together on Earth, why are there so many legends about dragons or similar beings in cultures around the globe? I was able to put to rest the Paluxy River Tracks argument with a quick Google search. Even most creationists accepted the scientific explanation by now, but I didn't find much trustworthy information about the dragon argument. Please, please, please continue the excellent work. May you spread skepticism another 50 years at least. The world needs you. Well, thank you, Martin at forty eight degrees north eight degrees east <laughs> um, so first let 's deal with the Paluxy River tracks, so that every all of our listeners know what we 're talking about there. Have you guys heard about this
2: yeah no, Yeah, down by the old Paluxy River yeah. no,
1: nope. this is like There's a song about it worst evidence for creationism ever ever.
2: Ever. That's big. That's saying a lot. There
1: there are riverbed tracks of dinosaurs, and creationists said that there are human footprints alongside the dinosaur tracks. Therefore, humans and dinosaurs coexisted. (laughs) Fred Flintstone was real. Young Earth creationism, (laughs) right?
2: Yabba-dabba-doo.
1: Wait, does that mean Betty and Wilma were real? (laughs) Awesome. Ooh. In in order to believe that claim, though, you have to believe that the quote-unquote human tracks were of a giant human because they're giant footprints. Well, yeah, I mean
2: giants are in the Bible yeah, and stuff. Yeah, so, walk duh.
1: And you have to ignore the toes. The three, you know, big dinosaur toes that are emerging from the front of the footprints. Well, why do you have to ignore those? Because they're there. Because so the the human tracks are dinosaur footprints. They're just, they're you know, they're well, that's eroded. One in,
3: that's one interpretation. Yeah,
1: that's the correct interpretation. They're they're massive, large, three to, three clawed you know tracks. You can see pictures of them on the link that we'll provide. But
3: but in all other respects, human like they look. They, yeah, right.
1: <laughs> they they don't even look. They look like a cartoon, like human footprint. Again, if you erase the toes and completely, there's a vagueish sort of outline of of a, of a human footprint. It's but it's not close at all. It's just Steve. Ridiculous. What the hell are you saying?
2: Bad pattern recognition. Terrible.
1: So yeah, they're so bad that most creationists have even said, okay, yeah, they're dinosaur footprints. They're not human footprints. They kind of mumble that in their yeah. breath. <laughs> you know. But, but clearly that meme is still out there and creationists at barbecues are still spouting off about the human footprints.
2: <laughs> Could you imagine going to a creationist barbecue? <laughs> oh, wow. I'd love, love to be a fly on the burger and hear those conversations. Um, fly on the burger? Big,
1: big dino ribs on the grill. Right. So Google is all you need for that one. Uh, but,
3: but now the dragon. Yeah, but now
1: the dragon argument. Uh, you, you won't be able to find an answer for this on Google because it's a non-argument. People – yeah, because people couldn't come up with mythological creatures like dragons unless humans had some kind of cultural memory of dinosaurs. That's, that's the premise. That's it. This argument is just silly. you know Obviously, there's mythologies in every culture about magical creatures you know, from unicorns to leprechauns to Eskimos. Ah. <laughs> and, just going to say that. <laughs> oh, we're psychic. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and you're,
2: not even, you're not even twins in your psychic. Cool. Amazing. Yeah. Close
0: enough, apparently.
1: So the, the premise is just faulty. I'm not sure what else needs to really be said about it. It's just it's not an argument.
3: Here be dragons. Right. Well, but just one of my impression of that specific point was that not so much, not so much that there was this influence... That's remem- that was remembered this cultural Im- influence that was remembered, but just the fact that how could disparate cultures have such s- you know such similar beliefs and, and fairy and, and fairy tales about dragons if, if they weren 't true so that was the other it kind of related to what to what you were saying, but it 's just a you know, just uh, how, you know, that's, what, that, that's what my take was. That yeah.
1: Well, all right. So yeah, there are a- Asian dragons and European dragons, etc. Right. First of all, they're different; they're distinct. But yeah, they are very distinct. But also, you know, European and Asian cultures had inflows of information going back and forth. They were mm-hmm. not completely isolated.
3: Contamination. Yeah.
1: Well, let, I think I think we've covered that. So let's yeah. go on with our interview. We are joined now by Matthew Chapman. Matthew, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide.
5: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Now, we interviewed you a couple of years ago on our show. We met you at uh, The Amazing Meeting. I believe it was the one from two years ago. And we're having you on the show now because... So, Matthew, you are a writer, a journalist, and a a producer or or director. uh, And you have a film coming out that we wanted to chat about. So why don't you tell us about that?
5: Well, it's a film I wrote about... um All of the feelings that I have about atheism and religion in America. Um, The atheist in the film is very imperfect. He's flawed. He's wounded. The fundamentalist is kind of similar. He's flawed, wounded. And they have reached, as a result of their lives, they've reached completely opposite conclusions about how it's best to live. And they come in conflict, and it ends with a very tense situation. I mean, in fact, the movie starts with a tense situation, and then you flash back and you yeah. learn everything that I've told you. So it's uh, it's it's not a piece of propaganda, so nobody is perfect. It is, however, an exploration of the things that we believe in a form that can reach people's emotions, and I think kind of cross over that boundary that at the moment seems to exist between atheists on the one side and believers on the other.
1: Yeah, I mean that gulf certainly seems to be broad. Um, so you know, like as an atheist myself, I obviously always have an eye out for how non-believers of whatever stripe are portrayed in the media and movies. And it, it always strikes me that the atheist character is being written – by somebody of faith, by, by a non-atheist, they, they never seem to get it right or they fall into the typical cliche of, well, the atheism is somehow due to some major character defect. And not, to, not to say that the, that the atheist character has to be perfect. I said you can have a flawed character because we're, we're all flawed. We're all wounded in some way. But it always seems to be a character defect, not just another aspect of an interesting character. So has that been your experience as well? and Is that part of why you're, you're doing what you're doing?
5: Oh, yes, uh, that that has been my experience. And I mean, I think atheists are very rarely portrayed at all in, in movies. There are some sympathetic portrayals. I mean, House on TV, for example. But um you don't see a lot of atheists who are kind of, and I would say House is the exception to this, but you don't see a lot of atheists that are kind of well-rounded characters that have all of the character flaws and defects and strengths that uh, other people have and in this case in my film in the end my athe- atheist is asked to make a sacrifice that I think anyone would have problems with. You'll see for yourself whether or not he lives up to what one expects of decent human beings.
1: Yeah, so that's certainly one of the cliches or that's being promoted. I think mainly by like the real believer end of the spectrum that atheists are not only mean-spirited, but like we have no morals. Like it's equi- equivalent to amorality. That's sort of a bad cop that we've been fighting for a long time.
5: Yeah, and of course the exact opposite is the case. I mean, atheists, generally speaking, are people who have given thought to how to live and what is right and what is wrong, whereas people of faith are frequently people who have just received instructions and follow them blindly Without giving it any thought, so I would say that um, certainly, and I've met a lot of people on both sides of this. Um, you know, I wrote two books dealing with sort of the clash between faith and uh, atheism, and between science and 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 faith. And um, you know, I, I certainly have found that atheists are more inclined to actually talk about finding the right way, whereas very often you meet people of faith who just. Um, proselytize what they've learned and, and without giving it any thought at all.
1: Yeah, in fact, and we don't have to rely on our personal anecdotal experience in order to make that case. There's actually studies and surveys, you know, what, what there is that explore that issue. And if anything, uh, atheists are more moral than believers. And my favorite one, atheists actually are more knowledgeable about Christianity than Christians.
5: Well, I can believe that. I mean, I think the source of the hate mail that I got this morning is from a Christian blog that I responded to that was attacking the film, and the basis upon which they were attacking the film was was that the fundamentalist in the in the film appears to be about to commit murder or may actually commit murder because of his wife being adulterous, and I pointed out because I do know the Bible that the Ten Commandments, which this man was referencing in his attack on my film, saying, Well, the Ten this could never happen because in the Ten Commandments it clearly says thou shalt not kill. I pointed out that the Ten Commandments are all in the same book, Deuteronomy, as all of the admonitions, you know, that you can kill a kill a woman if she's not a virgin on the wedding night, that you can stone children to death if they're disobedient, and that you can kill an adulterer and the adulteress, uh, if they, you know, if you catch them, so it's all in the same book, and they pick and choose without. I think they don't even know. I think that everything yeah. is so filtered that it comes in a sort of pre-digested form.
1: Yeah, which leads back to what I said about atheists actually understanding what's in there better than they do, because you know we like to formulate cogent arguments based upon facts, whereas a lot of I think what's being passed down is, as you say, filtered. Uh, and I've, i actually had Christians argue to me that, well, the, the, uh, the commandment is not thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not murder. And murder is sort of a subset of killing, that justified killing is not murder. So that's why there's all these exceptions and – you know, it's okay if God tells you to kill every living thing in a city because that's not murder; it's somehow sanctified.
5: Well, I addressed this in my in my response. And I said, "Yeah, no, it, the guy wouldn't. It, it isn't murder. He feels completely justified in this. He is, in fact, right. support supported by the Bible." And I'm surprised. I said that you're attacking me rather than the fundamentalist because he only goes halfway. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you're a bit of a wimp. Is what I said. <laughs> <laughs> murder, of course not.
1: Well it's also it's hardly a stretch to to have a character who is willing to commit murder or whatever in the name of their uh, very passionately held religious views. I mean like there's no precedent for this. This is an unbelievable character.
5: <laughs> I don't think it's unbelievable at all. And I just think that that you know you need the right circumstances for people to feel justified to do things that are heinous. If you remember the There's a wonderful quote in uh, Oscar Wilde where he's the Ballad of Reading Jail where he says something along the lines of some people kill the thing they love with a hammer and some people kill the thing they love with a kiss. And I think that what my film explores really is the sort of quiet, persistent, daily cruelties that can occur as a result of religion whether it's in denigration of women, a generally oppressive atmosphere in a marriage, homophobia. To me, the fact that we're celebrating gay marriage in New York today, yesterday, the last few days, as opposed to doing it 30 years, you have to lay that 30 years of suffering clearly on the door of the church, and that is no small thing. It's not like saying, oh, well, it was only 30 years. That is 30 years of people committing suicide because they felt isolated and hated, relationships that became unsustainable, a huge amount of suffering because of this, this sort of the breaks that the church puts on social progress. So, yeah, that's what, that's what the film is really about. It's about the sort of quiet, persistent... And cruelty.
1: With the believer character, the, the the character who is, I guess, he's an evan- evangelical Christian. You're, you're portraying a character who is an evangelical Christian who is then put into a very difficult situation and seeing how he responds.
5: Well, I mean, I suppose if I had been a little more courageous, I would have made the evangelical Christian a Muslim. Mm-hmm. But I have to be honest, that kind of faith is so terrifying to me that I couldn't deal with it directly. I was just too frightened, which says, a lot, which says a lot about faith, doesn't it, right there. So I did take, and I felt it was more important in the long run, as an American citizen, as I am, to examine what exists in this country. And so I examined a fundamentalist who is on the extreme, Extreme uh, end of faith, but I don't think that he's in any way a rarity. I mean, I've gone around in this country in writing my two books and the article I wrote on on the trial in Pennsylvania, and I've met many, many, many men like this. And I mean, he is actually based on one particular guy. But it isn't rare, as you probably know, because you've probably been out there. It isn't rare for someone to look you in the face and say. Uh, you are going to hell and you're going to burn for all eternity. Mm-hmm. That is an extraordinarily violent thing to say. It's an extremely violent thing to even put out into the atmosphere in terms of children listening to this stuff. But even to a sort of grown person, to, to say, to, to say that to someone is, in my view, an act of violence. It's a kind of violence. And that these people think that eight-tenths of the world, or whatever it is, is also going to burn in hell for all eternity. This notion that you can take this extraordinarily brutal concept into your heart and live comfortably with it is is shocking to me. And after you've done that, how difficult is it to hate homosexuals or feel that women are second class citizens or that such and such a sect are infidels and therefore you shouldn't deal with them or atheists can you can send them hate mail etc cetera, etc cetera. so i don't view him as extreme in terms of the i mean there are really really lots of people out there like that i mean the criticism of movies and the intellectual activity in this country tends to occur in on the coasts and in large cities. But the heart of the country is in the middle, and it's full of stuff like this. As for the atheists, I mean, I just, having written drama before, the guy had to have flaws and had to have problems and had to be angry and pissed off. I mean, you want a conflict, you know, you don't want...
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, by the way, for our audience, how can they see the movie at this time if they want to?
5: Um, you can get it on, probably you can get it on Video On Demand if you have um, a cable box. You just search, search Ledge. You can also download it off um, iTunes or stream it off okay. iTunes. So it's available all over the country.
1: Oh, okay, good. Uh, and yeah. it's, it's The Ledge, that's the name of the movie, right? Yes, it's and the it's, yeah, yeah, and it's
5: a lot better than the trailers. The trailers both manage to give away too much and tell you nothing about what's really at the heart of the movie and it's a lot more subtle than the, than the trailer would suggest okay and what did you hope
1: to accomplish you know in your wildest dreams what would you like to, to come to be the result of this movie
5: well I'll tell you one story that encapsulates what I wanted uh, Someone who is working on this film has a mother who is a Pentecostalist, woman in, in America. Her nephew came out of the closet five years ago, and the woman hasn't spoken to him in five years. My friend, who worked on the movie, said to her mother, why do not you watch this film The Ledge? And she saw it on video on demand. As the titles were rolling, she picked up the phone and called her nephew to reconcile with him. Mm-hmm. Now, that is one example, out of several, by the way, where the Movies appeal to the emotions, reaches up into the head and affects people's actual behavior. Right. That's, that's what I wanted to achieve. I think often as atheists, I mean, we have the great intellectuals on our side, we have the best arguments, obviously, but people don't become religious for intellectual reasons. They become intellectual for emotional reasons. And therefore, the best way to reach them is through their emotions. I think you would say that the gay movement, again, the gay rights movement, probably has succeeded so well because it has this enormous body of work, of dramas, plays, novels, movies, um, and so on, that has appealed to people's sense of decency and compassion. And bit by bit, they've moved up into a more general acceptance from an otherwise disapproving public that's what i think we need to do among other things
1: yeah i agree and that you make a point that gets to the very heart of the atheist and the skeptical movement as well because what you're saying essentially is that it's hard to change people's minds and behavior based upon purely intellectual arguments which is mostly what we have and that is mostly what we do but all the psychological literature and you know you're saying your experience and i agree supports the notion that you actually change people's minds and change their behavior by appealing to them on a more social and emotional level. Although that's sort of the irony is that, well, our philosophy is partly about not doing that, right? About being more intellectual. So I think that that's almost like the core dilemma of the, the rationalist movement. But you think that you're you know, finding your way to an approach that somehow manages to skirt that problem?
5: Well, I, yeah, because I think that, you know, I think that all the intellectual argument in the world, it is only really based upon the des- desire to see people live in harmony, have compassion for each other, and avoid war. And if you turn that on its head and you have, for example, a film about a religious conflict and you have a mother and father on one side and a mother and father on the other side, and both of them lose their children in this religious war. That is very persuasive intellectually and very persuasive emotionally. And, you know, at a certain point, people say, we can't have any more of this bloodshed and cruelty and prejudice and general meanness. Let's look for another way. That I don't think you can actually truthfully divide the two because everybody I've ever met in the atheist movement actually has tremendous compassion for someone like Ayan Hersey Ali, who was genitally mutilated and then put under a death threat because of religion. One has to have compassion, and that compassion is at the root of all of this, and I, I'm not ashamed to be doing what I do as a dramatist. I think, I think it's hugely valuable.
1: No, I I agree. I mean, there's we often this point comes up on our on our show that you know we need the art. You know, we need people who know how to communicate or who have artistic talent. We can't just be a bunch of science nerds trying to send our message out to the world because it doesn't give us the full package, and we're, maybe we're not the best people to com- to communicate in this way. Um, so, absolutely, and I do think you know, I, even though I'm more. Uh, my online activity and my public activity is more towards the science and skeptical end of the spectrum than the atheist end of the spectrum. Even I frequently am put in the position where I have to fight off accusations that atheists are inherently cold, amoral, nasty people, it's because the, uh, that's what the other side is saying about us. That's part of their propaganda. So it seems like we have to we have to directly fight against that with not just, you know, surveys and data, but with, as you say, sort of emotional demonstrations or appeals.
5: Yeah, just as the gay rights movement had to fight the image that was foisted on them of being oversexed narcissists. Right. Um, You know, so a movie like mine that has an obvious compassionate element to it, and, um, you know, it says here's an atheist filmmaker who clearly is compassionate. I'm compassionate to the fundamentalist. I'm compassionate to the gay person in the movie. The movie is, is full of compassion, I hope.
1: Uh, anything else you wanted me to ask you or you want to talk about before we end?
5: Well, I would like to encourage um, people in our movement, um, skeptics and humanists and agnostics and atheists, to support the film because it is the first of its kind and I hope it won't be the last of its kind. Um, and the better it does, the better it'll be for our movement, because people in the business of financing plays and movies will see that there is a, an audience for things like this and that we will support stuff that talks about the kinds of things we're interested in. It's opening in New York and Los Angeles. In New York, it's opening at the IFC Center in the West Village on July 8th. And the more people who go and see it in that theatre, the more likely it is that other theatres across America, where the film should really be playing, um, will want to want to have it in their theatre, and then it'll get local press and people talk about it, and yeah, it, you know. So that that's my message.
1: No, I, I think that's important. You're right because we, we hear this over and over again from anyone who's in a position to control access to the media, whether they are a producer or a publisher or whatever, has this firm belief that skepticism and atheism, whatever, doesn't sell, that, that only faith in the paranormal sells. And until we can demonstrate that that's not true, we're going to con- constantly hit up against that glass ceiling.
5: Exactly. And you think about the enormous number of films based on superstition, never mind religion, and the effect that has on the developing brain. It is important to put things out there that make the argument for a kind of rationality. And um, I really hope the movie will open up in, in the smaller communities across America. And the paradox is that all of that depends upon it being well supported in the two sophisticated cities in america new york and l.a that least need it right right Um, right (laughs) so
1: all right well thank you matthew for talking with us and everyone go out there and download or take a look at the movie the ledge
5: steve thank you so much
1: my pleasure take care
0: it's time for science or fiction
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Now, Bob and Rebecca, you guys are tied at one win, one loss each. There are two more weeks in, the, uh, in this challenge. Uh, this week and then the, the deciding one is going to be at TAM. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, for this week, I did something a little unusual. It's four oh, items, boy. which I've done before. Four items out of three. So three real, one fake. These are four quotations or qu- oh, God. from uh, the last president, George W. Bush. Three of these are real quotes from him, and one is not. One is <laughs> what? <laughs> what is this? What is this?
2: Some sort of special torture.
1: Okay, you guys ready? Yep. All right. Bobby. Yeah. I'm just going to read the quotes. Item number one The problem with the French is that they don't have a word for entrepreneur. Oh. Item, and, and. Item number two and, and. We need an energy bill that encourages consumption. Yeah. Item number three Rarely is the question asked, Is our children learning? Uh, item number four. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Best science or fiction Uh,
3: ever. This
0: is ridiculous.
1: Okay. Three of those are real. (laughs) That's That's the scary thing. All right. Evan, go first.
2: Well... What do you say about these things? Right? <laughs> what am I, I going to do? Dissect uh, these these uh, pearls of wisdom? <laughs> My gosh. Ugh. Problem with the French. They don't have a word for entrepreneur. You know what? I think somewhere in this, Steve, though, you may have dropped a hint as to perhaps which one is the fiction.
1: Ooh. Um, I did? <laughs> I,
2: just reading between here. the lines. I'm reading between the lines because what I'm seeing on the lines I'm not liking. French would he would he would he out and out out the French like that knowing what I know of our 43rd president um maybe the energy bill that encourages consumption uh yes I think that one was spoken by him the rarely is the question asked is our children learning boy (laughs) that's that's even rough for him I mean he's famous for saying some wild things Is our children? It's like you know, us ain't got none, right? The most incorrect statement (laughs) grammatically ever. Us ain't got none. Um, So I kind of think it's a little over the top. I'm leaning towards that. The last one. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Jeez, I guess I'm going to go with is our children learning because that's even rough for
1: him. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So Bob, last week you went before Rebecca. So this week Rebecca, you're going to go. before Bob, so Rebecca, you're next
0: okay, um after looking over these they all they all seem plausible, so it's the mark of a good science or fiction. but here's the thing with Bush. This is my working theory is that Bush misspoke a lot uh he he made grammar mistakes and mixed up his words, but yeah, they he's, mi- they
2: misunderestimated him
0: right. But he's not stupid, you know. He went to Yale. He's not an idiot. So, I mean, after all, he masterminded that whole 9/11 thing. So, right? I kept it. I'm secret. just kidding, new listeners. I'm just kidding. Um, so, <laughs>
3: what are you, uh, a
0: <laughs> So, here's what I'm thinking: is that the first one? The problem with the French is that they don't have a word for entrepreneur. Requires him. Not to just make a slip of the tongue, but to fundamentally miss something about, you know, the way a word sounds and its origins. So I think that that one is the fiction.
3: Okay. I don't think Bush said that. All right, Bob. Hmm. Interesting. For me, yeah, I, I see what Rebecca's saying. I kind of... can. Agree with that, but the other one, the other end of the list, is the other one that I'm seriously considering. I mean, I can kind of make an argument in my head for some, for most of these. The fourth one's a little bit tougher. Um, I'm just trying to think of a scenario where it would require him to even think about saying, <laughs> "I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully," and it's it a little that
2: mermaid policy speech. And that that it's gave. a
3: little bit harder to to make that work in my head than, than some of these other ones. But one is also good. Both, so it's between those two. Yeah, there, there is a, a difference between one and the other ones. Um, yeah, I'm gonna agree with Rebecca and uh, and yeah, the entrepreneur. That's yeah, that's a kind of a horse of a different color that doesn't quite fit. Uh, I'm gonna go with that one.
1: All right, Jay, the
4: entrepreneur one. And when you first read these, that was the one. After reviewing them, that one seemed to be the most likely not true. Because from what Rebecca said, yeah, like I don't know if he'd call – if he would just call out the French like that. You know, the one about the energy bill, you know, sure, that that definitely sounds like something that he would say. Uh, is our children learning though? Wow. Really, George? I mean if you said that, you need help, pal. Well, think about the, the- – I
1: just up. <laughs> yeah, good, good, Bob. No, I know what you were gonna say, I
4: think, Bob. I know how much presidents and politicians talk. They're recorded talking hours at a time, you know, all the time, every week, almost every day under certain circumstances. Sure. They're gonna slip up. I mean, listen to me on this show, okay? You know, it's late, I'm tired <laughs> a lot of times when we record, you and know. I edit you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, mistakes that's I are going to happen, of, yeah. and I'm, you know, and I'm. It's funny, I, you know, it's just funny because he was fun to make fun of, and he was like the president that we couldn't get out of his own way, type of thing. But is our children learning? Man, that's pretty. It's pretty good. And uh, I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. I could see him saying that under certain circumstances, like you know, he's talking wow. about conservation of of our natural resources in the ocean and. You know that, that you know. Sure, I could come up with a circumstance where he would say something like that. I mean, but you know, this is really a crapshoot because any one of them is ridiculous enough. The first one, though, just it, it's not funny, and that's the reason I'm, I'm going to go with it. The other ones are funny. This one just isn't funny to me.
3: I think that's a good
1: reason. Okay, so you're going with the entrepreneur one too. Yeah, I think it's I think it's hilarious. What are you talking
4: about? It's not. It's not. It's actually a. a I don't think it's funny like the other ones. Is our children learning versus, you know, the French use, you know, no. Don't ever Okay.
1: <laughs> All right, so we'll go with the two that you guys didn't pick. Wait, uh, I got to say with... one more thing, Steve. Yeah.
4: I'll tell you why I'm, I'm I'm picking that one as the fake. You know that joke, uh, it's like those French have a different word for everything. Yes. Yeah. It's too much yeah. of a joke on that, and I just don't think. I mean, if, but I'll tell you what, if he did actually say that, and I'm not picking that one. I am picking that one as the fake, but if he did say that. He was joking. That's my guess. But that is – I'm picking that one as the thing. So
1: item number two, we need an energy bill that encourages consumption. You all think that Bush said this and Bush did in fact say that. Yes, that's his energy mm, policy to encourage Thank thank you for
3: saying that one is science (laughs) because that would have been bad. (laughs) That one is (laughs) true. Okay. Let's
1: go to item number four. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Did Bush actually say that? <laughs> Apparently so. In, I like
0: none of, none of us even questioned that one. We're like, yeah, of course, of course In he fact, that. he
1: did. He did say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a beautiful one because of, of what you guys went what through. Was the like, what was the context exactly? Yeah. Yeah. What was the hell was he talking about? So he was talking about, and Jay, Jay you were you were close about specifically uh, an energy energy producing dams that endanger fish life. Sure. Right? Oh, okay. And he was yeah, saying, yeah, yeah. oh, you know, humans and fish can coexist peacefully. Yeah. We can live with the fish um, rather than – We can sleep with them yeah, too. It all okay. makes sense now. Right so, and I think this next line was fish could be raised and slaughtered. Slaughtered.
3: <laughs> that's not exactly coexisting peacefully but – All right. So that's, so that's not even funny in context.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's not as funny when you have to, when you know the context. Yeah. yeah All right. So we'll go to item number one. The problem with the French is that they don't have a word for entrepreneur. Evan, you think this one is? and He said that 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 one is real. The rest of you think this one is the fiction, and this one is the fiction. Oh. Wait. 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 Which one was the fiction? Entrepreneur. <laughs> oh yeah. Entrepreneur. We won. You guys got it. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Jesus. Yay. So I actually that. found that quote on a page of George W. quotes. It was presented as real. Oh, awesome! And I laughed and, my mm-hmm. butt off because I thought that was the <laughs> funniest one. That just struck me as so funny, it's right? It'll have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, but I, of course, I had to check out, check them all out. And the first link that comes up is Snopes, false. He never oh, said good it. Good source. Good source. Yeah, and it was it was. Uh, the the source of that probably was uh, a comedian, you know, saying that yes. as a joke line about Bush, mm. but it's made its way into lore of funny George W. Bush quotes. But it's not real. Awesome. But that means that rarely is the question asked: Is our children learning? Is real? He didn't <laughs> oh in fact say that. Yep. I, I wonder uh, if he
3: stumbled because mentally, as he was thinking ahead, it was kind of hard for him to wrap his head around the proper way, which would have been, Are our, our children learning? Yeah, yeah
1: Maybe oh, I that's- think so. No, c- clearly, a lot of the quotes are him just stumbling in ways like that. You could tell that he's thinking about what he's supposed to be saying, and he's thinking more about what to say than the, what words to use. And, you know, Jay's right, to be fair. If you. if you know, people are recording you for hours and hours and hours all the time looking for the hours slightest slip-up. Four to eight years. <laughs> yeah, over years. <laughs> all right, here's my favorite one, though, but I thought you guys probably would recognize this, is where he says, there's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in, ten- in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on shame on you. Fool me. You can't fool, you can't fool me again.
0: <laughs> Whoa. Wow. Yeah, that one I, I
1: would have gotten. Yeah. I mean, you can't blow a quote from Star Trek. That's just unacceptable. There's a couple of great internet ones. He says, one of the things I've used on the Google is to pull up maps.
3: Whoa. <laughs> and
1: also, we can have filters on internets where public money is spent <laughs> on internet. Oh, that's true. Yep.
4: All right, so Bob and Rebecca are neck and neck.
1: That's true. So yeah. at yeah, 10 tam- yeah, is going to be the Bob Rebecca Throwdown. We're going to have yeah. a science or fiction where you guys are going to go head to head. And I think on that show, what I'll have you do is submit your choices in writing in secret. Okay. Before um. we reveal them, so you so because it's not fair now for either of you to go before the other. Can we text them to you? It's true.
3: So true.
1: Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Oh, I like you're that at the idea. Freaking Jay. Table. The? Yeah, why can't we
2: just pass them? <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna bounce that then twenty three thousand miles into space mm-hmm. and back.
1: So anyway, so good job, guys. Evan, sorry, t- two weeks in a row, you're the lone man out. Got to make up for it next week.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. Yep, I'll bring a baseball yep. bat. Make up for it All real right. good.
1: So this show will be up while we were are at Las Vegas. We were we are at Tam right now. In fact, kind of yeah, nice. I'm yeah. Fun. yeah. That's I'm, I know yeah, whatever
4: I'm, sure I'm doing at this moment. I'm loving it. Yeah.
2: yeah. How many how many people do you think will be have heads, headsets on listening to this episode while we're live I don't know. Yeah, the, the, the That would be weird.
1: Next week's show will be the edited version of our two live shows at TAM. Always fun. Always good to do live shows. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And there may be some
1: surprises. There probably will be. Usually we pull out a, pull out a few <laughs> surprises for the live shows. Nude yeah.
3: podcasting.
1: <laughs> Jade, you got a quote for this Audio week? Only.
4: Okay, Steve, I have a quote from Brian Green. And you guys know who Brian Green is, right? An American theoretical physicist yeah. and string theorist. That means he I plays love the him. violin. Ah. Uh professor at Columbia University since ninety six. And the quote is When you know the answer you want, it is often all too easy to figure out a way of getting it. Brian Green <laughs> <laughs> You just leaped into uh. that, didn't you? Nice. And that quote was sent in by Joshua Howard. Thank you, Joshua.
1: Thanks, Josh. Just one quick announcement. Now, I know what you, the listener, is asking yourself. You're asking yourself, how can I support the SGU? These guys give me all this free content. Every week, in and out, they put out a free new podcast. So how can I help them in their endeavors? Well, you can check out our new store page. If you go to theskepticsguide.org and click on the store tab, you will see a completely revamped page giving you all kinds of options to support the SGU. You can purchase merchandise from either Rebecca's new site, The Skeptical Robot. We have T-shirts and buttons up there now. There's all sorts of other uh, types of merchandise available from Cafe Press. Or you can purchase one of our uncut episodes... These are premium content podcasts that are available in a paper download. Uh, And this is also a good way to give a little support to the SGU and getting something in return. And we also ask that you just donate to the SGU. You can do so in either a one-time donation or now we have a recurring subscription. Uh, If you want to do a voluntary subscription to the SGU, we would greatly appreciate it. So check out the, the new store page. And uh, give us your support. Thanks. Well, uh, look forward to seeing you guys when we're actually at TAM in real time, not virtual time. we'll, you Yay, will. we'll be there wait. all week.
2: Yay! <laughs> real, we'll be, try the veal. <laughs> <laughs> and until next
1: week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe.
0: The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.